Our sermon text this morning is from Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, they, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Alamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. We're going to get into this passage and try to get through all of Acts 2. Um, but please pray with me before we do that. <laughs> Father in heaven, thank you for your great word, which cuts our hearts and comforts our souls. Thank you that you have promised that your word will not return, in, will not return void. Would you come as you did then? Would you come as you do daily and speak life to us and give birth and rise and sustain our souls as you build your church? May Christ be glorified. Amen. So how did the, the early church come to be? How was it born? And how did it grow? Whether you're a Christian or not, that's a fascinating question because you have to account for it somehow, right? And Pentecost today is the day we celebrate the church's birthday. The way of salvation, as Curtis said, being open to all nations. And this question is so fascinating because the effects of Pentecost are still reverberating down the ages. Over two billion people today from all seven continents claim Christianity as their religion. You might be thinking, how does it get to Antarctica? How does it get to Minnesota? Same thing. How does, it, how does it grow today? That's what we want to get after. So we're going to go through Acts 2, and we're going to look at three ways that God builds his church. Three ways that he, that he birthed the church and three ways that he builds the church. That's patient prayer, powerful proclamation, and pervasive filio. Very Baptist. Filio is just a Greek word for love. And I could have just put a P in front of love because if knife can start with a K, then you could do whatever you want. So patient prayer, powerful proclamation, pervasive love. And we need to do that. We're going to look at patient prayer first by looking at what happened right before Acts 2. So look at Acts 1-4. Before the day of Pentecost, Jesus gave his disciples some very specific instructions. Wait. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. This promise that he's referring to is from John 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit, even the Spirit of truth. 
And then the record in 1.8, the record of Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven are, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he zipped off in a cloud and the disciples are just standing there shook, just staring at the sky and trying to comprehend what happened. And then two angels show up and they're like, why are you guys staring at the sky? And they're like, why do you think? Our best friend, the risen one from the dead, just took off. He's like, yeah, he'll be back. Go ahead down to Jerusalem. So they go back down to to Jerusalem with that last command of Jesus just ringing in their ears. Wait. Wait. Wait on the promise. Wait on the power. A helper is on the way. But how are they feeling right now? I'm sure anxious, eager, curious, fearful, power, powerless, tenuous, confused. And so they do what all waiting requires. They do what we are all called to do when we're feeling all these various emotions. They wait and they pray. If you look at Acts 1.14, it says, all of these probably about 120 of the Jesus' followers, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So what they do, they, they second Chronicles 2012 it. Second Chronicles 2012 is a wonderful verse. They're facing a vast army, Israelites are, and one of them says, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer, beautiful philosophy of life. They just embody Psalm 130 here. Maybe they were even, as they were gathered, singing this psalm together as they waited. It reads, I I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope, waiting promise, waiting promise. My soul waits In his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. It's expectant, patient waiting. See, this great movement of the Spirit, this great pouring out of power that we're going to see at Pentecost is preceded by prayer. And we see prayer precede other key moments in Acts, And we see prayer precede other moments throughout church history. This is the way it always is. Samuel Zwemer, who was known as the Apostle to Islam, summed it all up this way. He said, The history of missions is the history of answered prayer. From Pentecost to the Haystack meeting in New England and from the days when Robert Morrison landed in China to the martyrdom of John and Betty Stamm, prayer has been the source of power and the secret of spiritual triumph. Prayer has been the source of power and the secret of spiritual triumph. But but why is it like this, right? I think C.S. Lewis is helpful here. I'm glad I don't get to preach that often because I'd run out of Narnia references and illustrations. But in, in Magician's Nephew, two children are on their way. They're given a mission by Aslan. 
and they're exhausted in the middle of the mission and they stop for some food and they're hungry and they find nothing but grass. And so their winged horse friend is just chomping away on the grass happily and they're grumbling. And Diggory says, well, I do think someone might have arranged our meals. And then the horse says, well, I'm sure Aslan would have if you'd asked him. And then Polly says, as many of us has wondered, wouldn't he know? Wouldn't he know without being asked? And the horse replies, I've no doubt he would, but I've sort of idea he likes to be asked. God loves our prayers. The psalmist says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. The sweet and pleasing aroma to God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Our patient prayer pleases and delights God as he uses it to strengthen our faith, to deepen our trust, to inflame our love, most of all, to help us understand him, to remind us of his reality, root you in truth. Another writer says it this way, consistent and prolonged prayer will make our relationship with the Trinity more tangible, more tangible. He draws us close as he prepares to do great works. So join the world, move, the world missions movement through your own patient prayer. So this is the way God builds his church and we get to play a part in that. And this is part of our obedience. Jesus' words, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we look out at the nations, what, what do we do? He tells us, therefore, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So get together, redemption. Get together and pray. Pray like they did here before Pentecost. Start at your dinner table. Start in your living rooms with your family. Join a Thursday morning prayer group that has been praying for years together for God to work in your lives, for God to work in our city, for God to work in the nations. Grab the Joshua Project app or the Voice of the Martyrs app on your phone instead of going on Instagram as some sort of instant reflex when you're waiting in line. Just pray for two minutes. Pray for their unreached people group of the day. Find out more about the missionaries that we support as, as uh, we prayed for before service. And pray for them. And don't forget that great movements in the nations are accomplished through patient prayer, absolutely. But that is no less true. No less true for great movements in your own soul, in your own marriage, in your own family, in your own neighborhoods. Pray patiently and persistently and expectantly and then watch. Watch. So they're praying together and then we pick up in our text, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So what is Pentecost? This may be a familiar word to some of you. In fact, it was so familiar to me that really before this week, I never stopped to ask, what does it mean? What does Pentecost mean, the word itself? Well, Pentecost simply means 50th, penta being five. And they called it this because it occurred how many days after Passover? 50, 50, 10 points for Gryffindor. You can read about this celebration feast in Leviticus 23. It was also called the Feast of Weeks. It celebrated the Lord's goodness at the beginning of the wheat harvest. And all the devout men around the scattered nations, as part of the prescription for this festival, had to come to Jerusalem. So it's on this day that the Lord comes back, but not as they're expecting. Sum it up. God kicks in the door and overcomes them with the sound of like a torrential hurricane. And he falls on this small group of disciples with tongues like fire. And then as the crowd gathers because of the commotion and to their utter amazement, he enables them to speak in other languages. And this is crucial, whatever you, whatever you believe about speaking in tongues. Look at verse 11. What did they hear? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God is what they were talking about. So the Jews had been dispersed across all nations after their empire was torn apart. And here are many gathered back at Jerusalem for this feast. So God kicks off the early church with a reverse Babel. At the Tower of Babel, man had a common language. But God brought different tongues upon them because they were dedicated to declaring the wonders of man. And now moving toward unity, he unites them with one message to declare the wonders of God to all the different tongues. This is unity and diversity. This is a beautiful picture of heaven, a foretaste, when people from every tribe and tongue will be pleasing, will be praising God. And this is a great challenge to missionaries. Unless a fire of tongue falls on you and you start speaking in an intelligible language in the country you're at, you have to do the long, hard work of learning another language so that you can declare the wonders of God to people in a way that they understand. Hard, long, patient work. So Peter's standing there and he reads the scene and then it, it clicks for him. You gotta believe that Jesus' words come to mind. This power will come upon you and you will be my witness so what does he do? Witnesses. And this is the second way that God the Spirit builds his church. This powerful proclamation. Powerful proclamation here from Peter. And so with the best opening line to any sermon ever, Peter says, They're not drunk. They're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. It's not a college campus. And then he interprets this movement of the Spirit for them in light of this particular Old Testament text that he goes to in Joel. 
This passage in Joel reads, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. They shall declare the mighty works of God. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So why does he use Joel here? Well, if you read this short book of Joel, which I encourage you to do this week, it's only three chapters, you'll see that it's just a microcosm of the entire storyline of the Bible. You see disobedience of God's people, handing them over for judgment, the seeming absence of God, the people racked with the question that some of us might be, is, is there any hope? And then hope bursts forth in the rest of the book. Joel says a time is coming when God will rescue his people and he will pour out his spirit on all. And he says this filling, this redemption will be accomplished, accompanied, it will be accompanied by blessing and joy and celebration and deliverance and gladness and singing and shouting. And Peter is saying, time is now, it's here. The new age is here, and anyone who calls on the Lord's name is brought into this new age. And then Peter jumps from Joel, and then he ties the new age immediately to Christ's work. This new age is inaugurated by the victory of a king, and the king has a name. So Peter moves on to tell him what his name is. Do you see how crucial this is for building a church? How are you going to live in the king's kingdom? How are you going to be saved by the king if you don't even know the king's name? You see how this is the primary task for world missions? Digging wells is great and needed, and it can serve as an adornment to the message, but clean water doesn't save souls. The name does. It's estimated that about three people don't even know the name of the king. Three, three billion people don't know the name of the king today. 90% of unreached people live in places resistant to the gospel. There are more than 4,000 people groups that are less than 2% Christian. And there are more than 500 people groups worldwide where there is no, zero Christian presence and no one attempting to reach them. They don't even know his name. Do you? What's his name, Peter? Go ahead. Tell him. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Men of Israel, listen up. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. What a name. This man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, he says in 23. As you yourselves know, you guys know. You know what he did. You heard about it. 
fed 5,000, turned water into wine, cast out demons, silenced the storm, healed the sick, made the blind see, made the leper clean, made the lame walk, raised his boy Laz from the dead, stood down religious leaders, was a friend of sinners, proclaimed good news concerning himself, claimed himself to be God. You know him. You know what he did. And what did you do? You killed him. You killed him. Look at 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But you only did what God planned to happen. Look at that sweet, mysterious, biblical reality just smack you in the face right there. Who killed him? God did. Who killed him? You did. Who's responsible? Yes. And he just moves on. So don't think redemption either, that you or I aren't similar. That's why we sing, it was my sin that held him there. That's why Paul writes, the Son of God gave himself for me. My sin, your sin, played a role in crucifying him. We killed him. So he goes on, you thought if you killed him, that would be the end. But you didn't know the plan that he had back in Joel. You didn't know the plan that he had before the world began. No, this death was just checkmate against death and against the devil. Because death wasn't the end. No, God raised him up. Verse 24. Raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He went face to face with death, and he won. Death was 10 billion and zero. Every opponent swallowed up whole. If someone is 10 billion and O, oh, you do everything you can not to step in the cage with them. But not this Jesus. Oh, he jumps head first into the river of death, and death tries to hold him down. This is like in the Disney version of Hercules, our red-headed hero. Shout out to Disney for some representation. <laughs> so Hercules, his beloved Meg, dies, and she's taken down to Hades, where her soul is swirling around in, e in, e in an eternal vortex of death. And Herc offers himself up in her place. And he jumps in to save her, and death begins working against him, trying to swallow him up. And just as the little, the little witches who decide when a life has ended are about to cut his life string, bing, turns to gold. He doesn't die. He rescues his beloved. He carries her out of death. He punches Hades, the god of death, in the face and tosses him into the river of death. He killed death. This Jesus. I don't have time for Psalm 16, but Peter uses it to show the Jews that they could see this reality in their own scriptures. Look at your word. Haven't you read? That's what King David talked about. This Jesus, 
He goes on in verse 36, God has made both Lord and Messiah, whom you crucified. It's not good news yet. Knowing the king is alive is not good news if you're the one who tried to end his reign. That's why the people respond as they do here in Acts. What happens in 37? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart. Oh, we did that. That was my sin. Brothers, what should we do in light of this? What should we do? This is where the good news comes in. Repent. Repent and receive. The Lord, the King that you tried to end, is also the Messiah. We need both. The king who should have lopped off heads offers a peace treaty signed with his own blood to bring you not just into his kingdom, not just even to his table, but into his very heart. And all you got to do is receive. You turn away from every false allegiance, all false religion. You turn away from yourself and your self-salvation project And you demonstrate this new allegiance through baptism, all by faith, and you just become an open-handed receiver. Pentecost was all about receiving. Guys, the Bible is so dope. It's so good. We come back to Pentecost. We said was celebrated 50 days after Passover to celebrate the wheat harvest. Don Carson says that Pentecost was parasitic to Passover. It was so closely tied to it. It was Israel celebrating the deliverance from Egypt on Passover and then their reaping of a harvest in the promised land. A land, as Joshua writes in chapter 24, which you had not labored in. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. The Feast of Weeks was Israel celebrating God's giving them which they did not earn at great cost to another. And it happened on Sabbath. This is, this is only for receivers. And here, Christ has just been crucified 50 days before as the Passover lamb, giving himself for our great rescue from bondage. And here is Israel given the opportunity to celebrate God's giving them, which they did not earn at great cost to God. Just take it. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit is what he said. That's what you receive. These are the gifts Christ purchased for you at the church's birthday. And then look at at this angle. Tradition also held that the law was given 50 days after the Exodus. The law, the Ten Commandments. So Pentecost was also a time that the Jewish people celebrated God's gift of the Torah. And here, 50 days after Christ purchased us out of slavery, the Spirit is given to supplant the law. This is brilliant. Augustine writes, Just as there were 50 days from the Passover in Egypt until the Ten Commandments are written by the finger of God, so now the Spirit comes at Pentecost to write a new law on your hearts. 
In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, we're reminded that, that the letter kills, the law kills. But what does the Spirit do? Gives life. Life is given at Pentecost. This is everything the Old Testament has been pointing to. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Or Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant, this new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people. You can have life because you can have God. Pentecost is God's declaration that he will be your God. It's his declaration to the nations. I will be your God. I am your Lord. Come to me. And that's what the gift of the Spirit is. It's God sealing you up and saying, mine, mine. That's what we call the nations to receive. This is a great gift of love. You see that? In verse, look at verse 33. As Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God, and he has received from the Father, he receives from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This gift is an overflow of inner Trinitarian love. God the Father giving God the Spirit to God the Son to give to God's people? It's God giving the gift of God to God who gives God to God's people by the sheer grace of God purchased by the death and resurrection of God as planned from all eternity by God all to the glory of God? Who can make this up? Who would, who would make this up? The gift of the Spirit is God himself. That's the promise of John 14 that Jesus is talking about. God will come dwell with you forever. It's not judgment that you'll get from murdering God. You will get God fully, no hesitation. He will not hold himself at arm's length. He will not merely tolerate you. He will not begrudge you. He will come fully and wholly, bring you into his very heart. That's what's happening at Pentecost. All who call on him get him. All people from the north, the south, the east, even the Kanye West. You can have God. That's the heart of our message. That's our proclamation. That's the heart of the whole Bible. One writer says, this could be said to sum up and to contain the entire message of the Bible. The whole of the history of the covenant and of redemption lies behind this glorious affirmation. Every aspect of the hope of Israel is woven into this one simple and yet profound statement. The dwelling of God is with man. You can be his people. He can be your God. That's what your heart craves, isn't it? Look what happens when he comes to you. This is what the nations need. This is what you and I need. God in us. 
God in us, just to wash, let us wash over you some of the ways the Bible talks about God in you, the Spirit. God in you to make you new. God in you to guide you into truth, to lead you, to sanctify you, to empower you, to pray for you, to bear fruit in you, to unite you to others, to wash you, cleanse you, fill you with hope, free you from sin, calm your fears, teach you, fill you with joy, comfort you, and then pour divine love into the deep recesses of your soul. And so reassure you that you are a beloved child of God that you can't help but cry out, Father, I'm yours. That's what Jesus died and rose to give you. Nothing less. You can't earn God. You can't earn this gift. Be a receiver. Call the nations to receive this gift. Spread this good news to your neighbors and the nations as we strive to obey the Great Commission. Brian Kettering pointed out this week, one of his favorite verses is Acts 4.20. And it says, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. We can't help it. Simply bear witness. That's what Peter is doing here. He's just talking about what he's seen and what he's heard. This fully orbed, powerful proclamation is just a gospel basic. But it doesn't get any deeper than this, does it? And then when a church takes this into the center of their hearts, this gift of love, they overflow with love for one another. So the, the temptation when we hear about global missions or witnessing, it can be just toward guilt. Look at the need. What are you doing about it? You and your precious little safe ho-hum day-to-day work life in America. And it might be harder for some of you because you've longed to go, but doors have been shut. Or some of you have been over there and you've had to come back. But don't give in to that temptation toward guilt. You might have expected this, the next passage in Acts to start talking about how they all went and gave up everything and gave their lives as missionaries and began getting martyred. But what we see is that the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost It led to a healthy and loving and beautiful and supernaturally ordinary local church. That's the built-in application of our text. This is what the Spirit does when he comes in, when he comes in power upon a church. Look at the end of Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Just a way of saying they devoted themselves to gathering together. That's what we do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Apostles' teaching, communion, prayers, singing the psalms. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone in need. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord did what? Added to their number daily those who were being saved. So moving towards close here, this is is the way the Spirit builds His church. Whether it's here or abroad, this is this pervasive love 
This is what the world needs. Healthy, faithful, ordinary churches who pray and preach and love. And we get this gloriously ordinary role to play in this work. So don't feel guilty that you're not out there. Think about it. Ask God if he would call you to that. But you are part of the church's mission. Make disciples. For a lot of us, that starts right at home. It starts right here. Look to your neighbors. That's what we're about. God knows what he's doing that he put you in Rochester, that he put you at Redemption City. God knows what he's doing that he gave you whatever you think limits you from going out to the field. Devote yourself once again to the church. The main way you advance world missions is, again, yes, pray. Yes, spread the gospel with intentionality. But your primary role is to love your church family. So redemption, just keep doing what you're doing. So many of you are uncommonly devoted to Sunday gatherings, to hospitality, to living with gratitude and generosity, to reading books together, to getting together to pray, to adoption, just doing life with one another, this good and hard and wonderful life. I love this church. I know I'm part of something special, something close to heaven. That's what we're after. Peter says, this is, save yourself from this corrupt generation. We want to go into the new age, the new generation, this new creation. That's what I taste here. I'm part of something special. If I can, if I can rest easy knowing that if I were to die, my church family would ensure my wife and kids were taken care of, Not many people can say that, I don't think. May people all over the world taste such a divine gift. So keep devoting yourself afresh to love one another, to the prayers, to the powerful proclamation of this beautiful gospel. May the Lord build his church here and abroad. Let's pray. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne and said, Look, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and, they will be, and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from our eye. Death will be no more. Neither grief nor crying nor pain will be any more because the previously... Because the previous things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne, the Lord and Messiah, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Lord, help us taste that newness today. Help us receive our food, our spiritual food, and our physical food with glad and generous hearts as we keep loving one another. Amen.